Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. Our guest this week is Mary Childs. Mary is a co-host and correspondent for National Public Radio's Planet Money. Previously, she was a reporter at Barron's Magazine, and before that, a reporter at the Financial Times and Bloomberg News. She received her bachelor's degree in business journalism from Washington and Lee University. Mary is the author of a new biography of iconic PIMCO bond fund manager, Bill Gross. It's called The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. And we spent this episode delving into the book with Mary's help. Mary, welcome to The Long View. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. What was your goal as you embarked on writing the book? And was that still the goal by the end? <laughs> so, yes, the goal did stay the same. I mean, I, I came from covering credit markets at Bloomberg News. You know, I spent four years doing that at Bloomberg and really loved the credit markets and writing about credit markets. And I had this sense that they were poorly understood in the mainstream and that that was this, you know, egregious omission and that that I was sent to rectify that in some way. <laughs> and by luck, you know, it just ended up that I was covering PIMCO at the moment that all of this stuff went down that you can read about in the book. So, so the goal of, you know, bringing some bond market education wrapped in the guise of this, you know, entertaining and, and wild narrative, that was always the the mission. And I think that stayed the same. But, you know, the narrative shape of the book did change substantially because things kept happening. I thought that the book would end in 2014. You know, the narrative would end in 2014 and it would be, you know, Bill Gross went to Janice. It was this big surprise, the end. But it took me so long to write this book and to do all the research necessary mm-hmm. that people had time to just like keep doing stuff. So Bill Gross, you know, added on a couple events that, you know, became journalistically impossible to ignore. So I ended up having to to change the ending about 400 times um, and, and just kind of, <laughs> get, get, you know, I was like, okay, it's going to end in 2017. Okay, 2019. Okay, okay, 2020. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stop updating it. So I'm glad that it's finally in print so I can now stop. But, um, but yeah, the true mission of it was always that kind of bond market, I don't know, literacy and wanting to kind of communicate that and say, this world isn't as scary as you think it is. You know, it's moded by jargon, but it's still accessible. We can get over the bridge. Right, right. And the book does that really well, I think. It explains bond investing, bond trading, but it also manages to be wildly entertaining. So we wanted to talk about Bill Gross, obviously the pivotal figure in the book. He cooperated in some of your reporting, but he stopped cooperating at a certain point. Can you discuss that? Yeah, sure. So yeah, he was super open and helpful. And, you know, he's a a mediagenic guy, famously mediagenic, um, as you can read in the book, and also just observe in decades of of media appearances. Um, And he was super nice about kind of sitting down with me and opening up about his life and his investing instincts and what made him, you know, the way that he is. And I think what ended up happening was you know, my fact checker sent him a list of questions and you can really see kind of the bones of the book in those questions, right? Of course. So it's, you know, here are the basic facts that are in the book and you can see the facts that didn't make it in and the facts that did. And in the end, it was great because I think it's really wonderful that he wrote his own book and, you know, he published it two weeks before mine, which is sort of funny, but also probably helped me, frankly, you know? And it's not every day that you kind of have source material also published, like this 
trove of his own perspective. And you can kind of line it up against my book and compare and contrast and say, okay, this part clearly is what Bill thought and just see where things deviate. I mean, I think it's really an interesting study journalistically. So, you know, he was super helpful and cooperative, but in the end did want to have kind of control of his own narrative in this way. And I think, I think that's wonderful. And, and he wrote his own, you know, lovely autobiography and I think it's kind of a great outcome. So had he cooperated in recent years, what parts of the story could he have helped fill out more? Hmm. I think the events of the later years that that did end up, you know, being the things that people remember, to some extent, this is recency bias, of course, but, you know, he's had these kind of uh, big disputes with, you know, he had a very ugly divorce and he's gotten into this kind of protracted battle with his next door neighbor. And I think in both cases, they're not the things that he wants to be remembered by and and talked about, you know, he wants to be a philanthropist. He wants to be the bond, you know, this this great investor, this legendary figure in investing. And this has changed the tone a bit. And I, a lot of it has surprised me, frankly. So of course I would ask him about those things. And he's so reflective that I think he actually, you know, were we really chatting again, I think he would absolutely tell you what he was thinking. He would, he's, he's very open, but, um, but at the same time, he doesn't want to talk about that stuff because it, it's not what he wants to be known for. It's not what he wants to like keep going on about. He wants to change. He he doesn't like that aspect of of you know his reputation now, and so so I think even if even if he would get on the phone right now, which frankly I haven't I haven't called him. I haven't really tried. Um, I want to you know sometimes there's a point at which you want to give people space, um, but I do think that he wouldn't really want to get that into it because he wants those things to go away, which I get. Mm-hmm. You talk about Gross's early life and his career. Um, you note that he wasn't a wonderkind as a student, and he kind of stumbled his way to what eventually became PIMCO. In fact, you could argue that he took an interest in handicapping risks and trading bonds literally by accident. Can you talk about that <laughs> accident he had and how it arguably altered the course of his career and his life? Wow, yeah, that's <laughs> that's well put, I guess. So yeah, so he got in a car accident and I shouldn't laugh because it was very serious and it was a a very bad car accident, um, his senior year of college and that put him in the hospital and he ended up, you know, just bedridden and in his boredom picked up this book by Ed Thorpe, Beat the Dealer, which described methods for counting cards and beating the dealer. And he found it really interesting and, you know, it's a little bit like, is this even for real? So he starts practicing counting cards, hand after hand, playing basically against himself in his hospital bed. And he's like, all right, this kind of works. He goes to Vegas. He takes, you know, famously, this this is part of his legend. He takes $200 to go to Vegas and counts cards for ages, for three months. And, you know, for long, long days, seven days a week, which is just, I'm exhausted thinking about it. And yeah, that's his real first foray into learning to feel risk, into, you know, the Kelly criterion, into knowing how much to bet at a given time, into knowing what the odds are and when to, you know, lean into the risk and when to lean out. And I think that that was very formative, both in his investing instincts and his appetite for risk, but also... Well, and in in knowing that he could have a system that would beat the market, that would enable him to beat a system or a machine. And then it also became so foundational to his legend. So this was, you know, a huge part of how he advertised himself and how he positioned himself. And it was super effective and memorable. People really loved the story. So it was an accident that that got him there, but it ended up being really formative. 
So PIMCO had humble beginnings. It was gross and about $5 million bucks, if I'm not mistaken. Can you talk about how the firm got off the ground and took shape in those years? Absolutely. So PIMCO at first was just truly a corporate shell. It was actually, um, you know, the original shell that they created was for asset management and it was Pacific Equity, which is so funny in retrospect, right? But basically this life insurance company had hired a consulting firm to tell them, you know, where they should be pushing next. And they were like, oh, you should do asset management. So they had built this shell as sort of a, a gesture at that. And they're like, yeah, we're, we'll figure this out later. And then Bill Gross, you know, he meets with this guy in the area who's kind of evangelizing about trading bonds, which is this radical idea at the time. And he convinces his boss to allow him and this one other guy to manage a small portfolio within that corporate shell. And this is the kind of apocryphal beginnings of PIMCO. And it's funny because it is such a random little corporate shell. It's like saying that Bill Gross and the two other co-founders co-founded PIMCO is sort of itself a revision of history where, you know, the word founding is like not at all the meaning that we think it is in in popular culture, I feel like. Like we're like, oh, that means they they were the people that started it, right? Like, eh. There were a lot of people involved and Bill Gross, you know, was was one of them and, and among them, but there are definitely people who take issue with that. So yeah, there was this um, kind of bureaucratic and anticlimactic beginning where they were allowed to take a stab at, at trading bonds and Pacific Mutual was cool with it, which is, I think they were tenuously cool with it, but it was remarkable that an insurance company would be into this kind of risk taking, Right. Bonds served a purpose for them, and it was a very conservative and well-articulated purpose. So this was a really kind of radical thing that they got to do. Let's talk about that popularization of total return as a bond strategy. It seems odd that the concept of trading bonds for total return, you know, income plus capital appreciation didn't really take off until the 1970s. You discuss Bill Gross literally clipping coupons early in his career. Why did it take that long for bond trading to catch on? It's such a good question because it seems so wild to us now that this would not be a market, would not be an asset class, which I would say just illustrates the influence of Bill Gross and his cohort. But I think it was partially that, you know, insurance companies and other financial institutions had a prescribed need for, you know, they had a very specific need for bonds. Bonds filled this specific purpose of being an exact and predictable flow of money. So you could just kind of match it against incoming liabilities and you would feel great about this like schedule that you had. And it was, I don't know, that's comforting, right? And you can sleep at night and the idea of trading those away and losing that beautiful matching little ladder that you built, that's so sad. Why would you do that? Why would you add risk into this thing that's working perfectly? So obviously to some extent, you know, we always resist change as a people, as a society, whatever. But in another sense, we maybe resisted change here because it was working. It was low risk. It was, you know, steady Eddie. We all felt good about that and it was fine. So I think it seems obvious to us now, but at the time, I think they had a system that was working and good and the urgent need for trading bonds came in when inflation really started messing things up. Who was gross trading against in the earlier days? There had to be others out there who were trading bonds like he was, yeah. So who were they and and why was he able to get the better of them? <laughs> so I think um, it was slow going at first. I think there were not quite as many, you know, Howard Rakoff, the guy who was going around evangelizing about trading bonds was certainly one of the earliest and he was an enduring figure in Bill's life and is. And there were other people, you know, there's Occidental Life Insurance in LA and, you know, Lehman was doing this. There were 
people here and there at various other places that also kind of got the bug. But among them, soon enough, is Larry Fink, of course. And, you know, people at regional banks and other life insurance companies would get this same idea, maybe because Howard Rakoff called them and said, you should be doing this with me. But yeah, it was a small band at first. Oh, and why was he able to get the better? I don't, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think that he wasn't able at first, you know, the track record in the early seventies was not super stellar. And there's this kind of, you know, corporate urban legend where the management would come around and be like, y'all got to figure this out. This operation's been losing money. You need to like get your profits together so we can justify having this. We're going to shut it down. And that went on for, you know, five years of the operation. So I don't think it um, naturally made immediate sense and, and that Bill was, you know, outsmarting them from day one. But he did prove, you know, by especially the early 80s that he was pretty sharp at this and, and better than most. You chronicle PIMCO's culture through the years in the book, and uh, very few women figure into the story of Gross's and PIMCO's rise. The firm was dominated by male portfolio managers and senior leaders through much of the period that you chronicle. But there was one woman who played a very big role Mm -hmm. in PIMCO's success, and you do talk about her in the book, especially in the earlier years. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about Pat Fisher? Can I ever? So... (laughs) This is like a tiny soapbox that I built for like just myself. I don't <laughs> I don't know what I think is going to happen, but I think that Pat Fisher was so instrumental to the founding and creation and shaping of Pimco and to its success. You know, there's a lot in fixed income and especially in, you know, mortgage-backed security investing that is really detail-oriented and very gnarly. And, you know, Pimco grew out of this insurance company. So to a large extent, they already had the systems in place to do, you know, principal versus interest and, and kind of accrual accounting and various other kind of complicated things that apparently banks and other, you know, asset managers back then were just like not up to speed on. Um, there's this one trade that I talk about in the book where it's a pretty complicated mortgage trade and it ends up with um, underlying mortgages being delivered. And Pimco has to like call the banks. Pat Fisher calls the banks to be like, do you mind um, sending the interest? Like, do you mind sending that payment down? Thank you. Just because other people, just like the systems didn't exist yet. And there are so many examples where Pat Fisher, later Podlick, did this, where she manually seems to have connected pipes between the banks where they didn't do, you know, XYZ thing. And, And Pat Fisher was like, why don't you do this? You know, there's a, she had like a ranking system that she created within, uh, you know, she ran operations at PIMCO, I should say that, and, you know, trade execution and settlement. And there was kind of a a sense in the early days that everybody wore different hats and those hats kind of rotated. So the official titles changed at times that, you know, at one point she was running the cash desk, but, you know, she would rank the banks against each other in trade execution, you know, efficiency, all of these different metrics. And the banks got wind of it. I think she may have informed them of it. And, and they're like, wait, what are we ranked on? And I mean, these are competitive people. So of course, immediately PIMCO's execution improves, right? Because they're all like, no, I'm going to be number one. No, 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 no. I'm better than Merrill. So <laughs> Pat had learned to game, like figured out to game everybody's psychology and get the best execution for PIMCO. And, you know, there are countless ways in, in my view that this shows up, but getting that good execution, having efficient operations and like a frictionless trade experience with your counterparties, with your clients, all of this is critical in making your fund be a serious place, right? Where your clients and your investors and your counterparties all take you seriously and want to do business with you. You know, if people think you're a joke because you can't get your trade straight, you're not going to get business. So yes, I think that this is undercounted across asset management, this kind of back office operation. But in my mind, in my heart, Pat Fisher is a co-founder. Yes. 
I wanted to change gears and talk about Gross and his psychology, some of the motivations that drove him. You tell the story Mm -hmm. of how he would ask interview candidates to choose between money, power, and fame. In his mind, and I think he's on record beyond the book saying this, the correct answer was fame. Do you think he saw fame because it was harder to obtain than money, but maybe less taxing than amassing power where he'd have to build durable personal relationships? I really love this question because I I think the idea of power being tied to relationship building is so interesting. And, and yeah, like maybe it is the one, fame, you're at a remove, right? Power, you have to influence people and directly interact with them and change their minds about things and, you know, pressure them or whatever. Fame, they just know about you. You know, there's no actual relationship. It's kind of a, there's a canyon between you and the audience, right? Which I think makes a lot of sense for Bill Gross and feels, you know, emotionally resonant, I think. Um, I love that you think making money is easier than being famous. I think TikTok might disagree with you, but <laughs> <laughs> but that does make sense. Um, I don't, I think, you know, he's talked about this to me and to many other people it sounds like the driving force for him was fame because he associated it. He wanted it to kind of fill in this this hole, this sense that he needed to be loved, where he sort of equated fame with love. And, you know, he attributes this need for love and for kind of, you know, that proxy and fame. He attributes that to a very cold Canadian upbringing that his parents didn't really hug him a lot and he didn't have a, you know, deep relationship with his father and that there was just like a lot of coldness, not a lot of sugar in his childhood Kool-Aid is I think how he put it. So, you know, he says that he wouldn't argue with the end result, like he wouldn't change how things happened. And, you know, certainly there are a lot of metrics that would agree with him. Um, But yeah, it sounds like the engine was created in those early days where he needed some kind of affirmation and love and just wasn't getting it. So kind of delving into his background and his psyche, in your reporting, did you find that there was a time in Bill Gross's personal or professional life when he was truly happy? Or has there always been sort of a Mm -hmm. restlessness as far as you could tell? I think both. You know, when I spoke with his childhood and kind of lifelong best friend, he definitely remembers moments of sitting, you know, on two chairs looking out at the ocean and and feeling content. And I think that he did have moments of happiness and of of being content, but those were like snatched from the jaws of of defeat, right? What is that saying? I'm not doing it right. Something like that. I think that's right. (laughs) Anyway, so he, he, he definitely, he had moments where he was content and happy, but they were kind of uh, stolen from the greater arc, which was indeed this restlessness, this need to keep pressing and to outcompete everybody else, to to show everybody else and to just win, win, win forever. So I think, I mean, insofar as you can be that relentless and that dogged and steal those moments of happiness, absolutely he did that. But I do think that you're right, though, the kind of overarching theme is one of relentlessness and restlessness. Gross clearly thought of the street is competition. You talk Mm -hmm. in the book about how he despised paying anything more than the bare minimum to execute and always seemed to think he was getting ripped off. Mm -hmm. But were there there others who he fixated on as potential threats and rivals, maybe beyond, you know, people he worked alongside? I think he viewed anyone reducing the final pile of money as a problem, as a threat. And as something that needed to be addressed. And that, you know, that can be, you know, 
pencil-pushing corporate bureaucrats within his own firm, for example. Or that can be, he might be looking down the street at Jeffrey Gunlock in LA thinking, you know, I know that Jeffrey Gunlock's returns were annoying, (laughs) annoying Bill Gross at one point where he was watching for years as Jeffrey's, you know, notoriety and fame and, and, you know, uh, investing records started to catch attention. And that I think, you know, watching someone with really good returns come up like that, that's kind of something that really would get stuck in Bill Gross's cross. So yes, absolutely. There were, it's kind of um, equal opportunity threat perception. So anyone, you know, that could be a broker or it can be the street or it can be any asset management firm that is doing well or encroaching on their space or, you know, the thing that kept him so, so intensely focused, one of the things that kept him so intensely focused in the market was this feeling that anyone could catch up to him at any time and he couldn't let that happen. So yes, all. (laughs) The narrow answer being Jeffrey Gunlock, but the, (laughs) the bigger answer being everyone. So besides popularizing total return bond investing, can you talk about some of the other big innovations Gross made or at least popularized as a bond trader? It seemed like a recurrent theme in the book is Gross and PIMCO being ahead of the curve on a lot of aspects of running bond money. Love that you said curve because yes. Um, but I do think, you know, there are exactly there are a bunch of different things that that, you know, they were very keen and innovative. Um, they they were really early to a lot of different financial products. I feel like whenever like a new technology or social media platform comes up, I'm like, oh God, do I have to? And that's me aging, right? Like that's me like rejecting modernity <laughs> and progress and new thing. Not that every new app is progress, but you know, like I'm just like, no, I don't, I don't feel like changing. That's not the right attitude if you want <laughs> to generate outperformance and like stay alive. So I think Bill Gross, Pimco, Chris Dialinus, a lot of these, these, they were very good at jumping into those new products as they came up. And, you know, a really good example of this is, is financial futures. He was able to convince a lot of these kind of commingled fund clients and a lot of these like very conservative pension clients to allow futures in their portfolios before anyone else was doing that. And before people were comfortable, frankly, you know, there was a lot of, I think, like cajoling and coaxing to get these clients on board and to their benefit, you know, financially. But, you know, there are a couple true innovations that I think Bill Gross, you know, their their market inefficiencies that he and Pimco spotted and that they were able to exploit for so long. So, you know, one of these that I've talked about is um, the kind of arbitrage between cash and cash equivalents, where instead of just holding cash against a position, they'll go into cash equivalents and just buy short dated corporate floating, you know, just totally fine Campbell's soup three months, nothing problematic here. Or they'll go a little further down the risk spectrum and just find something, you know, and those extra basis points over time really can add up. And then there's also, uh, back in the day, I think there was a something in the Treasury futures contract that had an implied repo of less than LIBOR. And there was this way to, you know, PIMCO and I think a couple other firms were able to kind of... Um, there was a structural factor in treasury futures for a long, long time that allowed them to basically exploit and like capture this little tiny carry basically. And over a very long time, that added up to a lot of outperformance. And there was a similar one in mortgage-backed security bonds, which, you know, they traded on a forward basis and had another kind of implied repo rate, which was less than LIBOR. So if you just bought them and then rolled them and then kept the cash in safer, you know, those safe cash equivalents again, that's just basically free money. I mean, of course it can go sideways, so it's not free, but that that idea was functionally, 
you know, spotting these not so much flaws in contracts, but just little tiny opportunities, things that you can just like snap up that little difference and do that every day until someone closes that that little loophole or whatever. The market inefficiency gets traded away because other people get wise to it. Those were true insights and true innovations, I think. And I think that, you know, that's a lot of what you see, you know, their enthusiasm for futures and other derivatives, their enthusiasm for the mortgage market, their willingness to take more credit risk. These were things that did contribute to outperformance. So those I do think, you know, that spirit of being willing to take more risk and also embrace new products really helped to build that outperformance. I wanted to ask you about another thing that you could argue is an innovation that he ushered in, which was expressing himself in pretty unguarded <laughs> ways yeah. in his monthly commentary. And relatedly, he could be pretty uninhibited in those yeah. commentaries. So, So my question is, do you think he kind of you know, in a way got off on being able to say whatever he wanted, that it reinforced how much sway he had and that no one could edit Bill Gross? (laughs) Absolutely. I think that this was, yeah, absolutely you're right, that this was both an innovation and also just delighted him that, yeah, no, I don't think anyone has really ever edited Bill. I mean, I think you might be able to move a comma in like an investment. I don't even know if you can do that. But and very much depends on who you who we're talking about. But I think, you know, that unguarded tone, that really kind of folksy, accessible, those stories were really weird sometimes. And really, you're like, wait, did you mean to publish this? But we all read them. We all read them and we all talked about them. And that absolutely fed this image of Bill Gross and this like myth and legend of Bill Gross, which got him on TV more, which helped to coax more client assets in. You know, I think in some ways, financial, you know, asset management, we we didn't have that many celebrities, right? I mean, we have Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, sure. But I, I feel like the thing here is Bill was a really early influencer before we had the words to describe it like that. And I think that he realized the power of this super early on. You know, I think his first investment outlook, if you read it, it's like a story, but it's not embarrassing or weird, or it's just a regular story. You know, he's talking about, I think the one I'm thinking of is a pretty early one where he's talking about going to the dentist and it's just regular, you know, it's not like as extreme as some of the later ones where, you know, his cat is watching him get out of the shower and he's like, why are you looking at me so closely? (laughs) Or, you know, when he thought that automatic flushing toilets had a camera that was, you know, they were like watching him somewhere. Like these are oddball, right? And captivating. People love it. So he figured that out pretty fast and just went with it to his great benefit. (laughs) Right, exactly. Thinking about those investment outlooks, um, I I think as an outsider looking in, one could have sort of said, well, is anybody giving him feedback? Could they have made this better, more digestible? And I guess a question is, you know, did the wildly unscripted nature of his investment outlooks, did that kind of hint at what was going on in PIMCO's culture, that truly there Mm. weren't people pushing back on on him? Yes, I think that's right. And, you know, to some extent, this is, you know, your co-founders eventually fall away. You're kind of left by yourself with all these like random kids that you hired over the years. And you're like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a world in which had there been more adults in the room that he respected and trusted, maybe he would have taken their input. Yes, I think the tone of those investment outlooks and the fact that no one could really touch them definitely underscores the degree to which he was kind of acting unilaterally a lot. But that being said, like 
it worked for so long. Who's to say when it stops working? How do you know when it stops working? And you can see him struggle with this in 2014 where he's doing what he thinks he's always done and interacting in the same basic way that he thinks that he's interacted the whole time. And it's like not working quite as well. It's not working right. The outcomes are not showing up. And I think in part that's because, you know, as we age, you know, things around us change and we don't always know the right exact moment or to your point, maybe he hadn't been able to get that feedback that he needed. You know, there weren't those people around him that he trusted and respected and could listen to at that point. And I do think that's right. I think there was, you know, there was a story that Pat Fisher told where, you know, if he would get mad at her for, you know, some corporate something or other, she would hire people and he was mad about it. And she would have to be like, Bill, you approved that. We talked about it. And he'd be like, oh yeah, sorry, sorry. But like, you know, she also had this thing where when he was all worked up at her and angry, she would just like touch him on the arm and he would kind of come back to earth. And who can do that? Can you imagine doing that to Bill Gross? I'm not going to do that. No, you don't. I, I don't. I'm not going to do that. So I feel like that was the picture in the 70s, you know, in the 80s and, and where they all knew each other so well and had been in the same room and small, small office for so long. And it was like a very familial feeling. And all that had kind of fallen away by 2014. And I think he was a bit unmoored. I think we want to come back to some of those dynamics in the culture of the firm and some of the specifics around Gross's departure. Before we do that, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on some episodes that you chronicled in the book that really relate to Gross and PIMCO's power. One pivotal episode that you cover relates to PIMCO's buying up Fannie and Freddie Dead and then Gross calling publicly for a government bailout of those entities, which eventually came. At the time, critics said it was an illustration of PIMCO unfairly benefiting from its position and its megaphone. Is that fair in your opinion? Hmm. That's a great question. It's one of those things where it's so open to interpretation to me where, I mean, of course they would be lobbying for this. It was what they believed, you know, it was what they believed needed to happen for the safety and stability of the financial system. And yes, it was to their great benefit. It was absolutely, you know, their, how they were positioned, but they were positioned that way because they believed it and thought that it was the thing that was necessary for the safety. and stability. So there's this like loop, right, that I think is hard to get out of where, especially in money management, you put your money where your mouth is because you believe it, but then you talk your book because you believe, et cetera. So, I mean, I think it's fair that, maybe we should re-examine the way we've built these structures. I'm not saying I necessarily have better ideas, but it does seem a little untoward that an enormous money management firm can have so much sway over the outcome of, you know, government policy and enorm, you know, everybody who has a mortgage was basically affected by this. And, you know, you see this resulting a couple years later, there's this um, lawsuit where the city of Richmond, California was trying to help underwater homeowners and these homeowners, you know, had bought their house. Their house was worth way less than they had paid for it. And so they're paying into the void, right? But the void is to the mortgage-backed securities investors. And Richmond, California wanted to basically revalue those homes and say, well, why don't we just like reset at the market right now using eminent domain? The government kind of like just hit the reset button. And obviously, all of the mortgage-backed security community was like, ma. No, everyone who invested in mortgages was like, this would undermine the entire mortgage market. Like, how would people get a mortgage ever again if suddenly, you know, if the, the rules changed like this? And of course, they persevered. Richmond, California's plan did not go through. And it's kind of, it was a, a radical plan for sure. 
But at the same time, this kind of creativity, we just don't really allow it. We seem to really like our structure where these mortgage investors are kind of the, they call the shots, you know? If they say, hey, you're going to have to make explicit that backing of Fannie and Freddie, that ends up happening. And then, you know, if they say, oh, I'm so sorry, you can't eminent domain these properties because then we'll never, you know, buy mortgage bonds again because we'll be scared, the Richmond, California plan goes away. And you can see why these things happen. They make sense. Maybe we like our mortgage bond market. Maybe a 30-year fixed rate mortgage that I can refinance at any time for no cost is a really great product. And I shouldn't argue with the end user that happens to benefit massively from that arrangement. But it is a little troubling, isn't it? That there's this very symbiotic relationship. Yeah, we wanted to talk about kind of the relationship between PIMCO and kind of the power center in Washington. At various points in the Bill Gross era, PIMCO was accused of being too cozy with Washington. Mm-hmm. You talk about Neil Kashkari joining PIMCO after running TARP and Greenspan working there as a consultant after leaving the Federal Reserve Chair. So what does the PIMCO story say about the kind of revolving door between business and the regulators of that business, in this case, the financial services sector? Yeah, so there is this, yeah, the revolving door aspect of you can serve in D.C. and help to regulate these markets and be the watchdog. You know, you blow the whistle on these bad actors that are abusing the rules and regulations. And then 10 minutes later, when you're feeling a little like your time in Washington is up, you can get a job at those places. It feels very structurally flawed. It it certainly looks as though you might be going soft on people if you then end up working for them moments later for enormously, you know, exponentially larger salaries than you made in DC. So I do think that there's, again, it's a troubling structure that we just have gotten a bit comfortable with. There was a big uproar, you know, post uh, financial crisis and around the time of Occupy, where I feel like we talked about the revolving door all the time. And it crops Mm -hmm. up sometimes, I feel like, where people are, you know, mad at Tim Geithner every other six months or something. But it is just random. And I under, I mean, there's like fatigue, right? We have a lot of things to be mad about, but it's one of those things where PIMCO really made this a selling point, this coziness with Washington, like, oh, we're the first port of call, you know, well, you know, BlackRock kind of is, but they were, <laughs> but they were, you know, oh, we, we have these relationships with, you know, the government and the quasi government. And, you know, this is a great thing for us, invest with PIMCO. And it, then I think when the tone started to shift, it became a lot more uncomfortable to have that relationship and to tout those relationships, right? Where you're like, oh, no, yeah, we did hire the former um, Fed chair. No, yeah, 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 we did do that. Um, And it's like, it's hard to, I think it's hard to say what the net benefit is. and, And from a branding perspective, I certainly am not a marketing person and I couldn't tell you, but it seemed like they wanted to say we have the greatest minds and, you know, everybody wants to come work with us. But then the tone is just like, so you're saying you're you're just paying Alan Greenspan, who used to create basically the dynamics of the markets that you invest in? And you're you're saying that out loud? <laughs> Are you sure? I don't know. It just the tone shift, you know? I wanted to shift gears and talk about Gross's departure. It's come up during our conversation, but maybe we can sort of burrow in on that event and talk about Mohammed El Arian, though he didn't cooperate in your reporting for the book, El Arian figures prominently in the story. He quit yes. over Gross's antics and 
Gross was consumed by bitterness afterwards. Why did that partnership fall apart? And in your opinion, how culpable was Gross for that? Huh. Yeah. Um, okay, two quick, um, just slight nuance because I have to. He ended up, Muhammad Alarian ended up obtaining a copy of my manuscript before publication somehow and did participate by sending notes. He had notes that he sent through a lawyer, which I greatly appreciated and of course incorporated, you know, the ones that I could. And I think it made the manuscript richer for it because of course I wanted, you know, his views and experience represented. Um, And then secondarily, I think that he would tell you that he did not quit because of friction with Grosso's to spend more time with his family. But your question stands and I will answer it now. Uh, So I think the dynamic between Bill Gross and Muhammad Alarian in many senses was doomed just structurally. And I mean that in two ways. The first way being kind of personality structure. Like as human beings, they're just really different. They have different sensibilities about managerial vibes. They have different investing strategies and debate strategies and interpersonal dynamics. Like everything I think about them is different. And in in kind of how you interact with them and how they see the world. And then structurally, you know, Muhammad Alarian came in as co-CEO and co-CIO. And Pimco had never had someone straddle those different sides of the business before. It had always kept very clean the division between business, investing, and client. And that was on purpose. They made that part of their, you know, branding thing to consultants, to clients. They were like, oh, it's a three-legged stool. And here's Muhammad Alarian being two legs, you know, and that was just unusual and weird. And they're like, okay, like maybe we can. And I think when Muhammad Alarian came on board that second time in 2007 as co-CEO, co-CIO, there was this kind of bump in the relationship at that moment where, you know, Bill Gross and Bill Thompson felt kind of uncomfortable with that dual role. And they were like, I don't know, I don't know, but they were excited about him and he needs to come in and we need somebody to be Bill Gross's heir apparent. Like we got to do this anyway. Yay, let's do it. Okay, fine. But it was this seed of mistrust, I think, this little tiny like grain of sand, you know, that just got stuck in there. And I think I've kind of come to the view that that the relationship was a little bit doomed from that moment. And then, of course, those interpersonal dynamics being so different, you know, Bill and Muhammad are sending each other these passive aggressive emails by 2013 that are just you know how it feels to receive one of these and your blood just like turns white and you're like, oh, like, absolutely. (laughs) We have all been there. But but yeah, they just, they had really different styles. And I think, yes, a lot of maintaining that relationship should have fallen to Gross and his inability to reconcile with Muhammad was for sure, to a very large extent, his own fault, right? Every bilateral relationship is our own, you know, responsibility to maintain but, and the other parties, but his job was never to manage people. And he was always supposed to be structurally insulated from having to deal with a lot of these things. And I think, you know, if you look at Bill Thompson's time as CEO, there's this story that actually didn't make it in the book, which I'm so sad, where there was this like very tense moment in a meeting where Bill Thompson's giving a presentation and Bill Gross is getting annoyed about something. And he makes a snarky crack at at Bill Thompson. And he says, you're a regular Gray Davis, the former governor of California. And, and somehow Bill Thompson, you know, there's this silence in the room where everyone's like, oh God, what's going to happen? And Bill Thompson just laughs. And there's this way in which Bill Thompson could kind of defuse Bill Gross that allowed him to keep going. He could just like keep rolling forward because he would just, it would roll off his back. He's just going to continue on. It was funny. We're all fine here. He was really positive. And for whatever reason, Muhammad Alarian was just not built in the same way and was not 
like, I think there was more of a cumulative effect of all of the infractions and annoyances and all of the slights and snarks. And, you know, where Bill Thompson could just roll forward, I think Muhammad was like, oh my God, I'm so done with this. So, you know, yes, of course it was Bill's, you know, definitely some of the blame falls to Bill for not maintaining or being able to maintain that relationship. But I do think that, you know, he was surprised by having to. So you chronicle that Total Return, PIMCO Total Return, had a couple of tough years toward the end of Gross's tenure there, 2011, 2013. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think that Total Return got too big for Gross to manage? And was that one of the reasons that performance moderated? It seems like the introduction of the ETF potentially provides a lens to help answer that question. Hmm, That's interesting. Yeah. The ETF is a little clouded to me with the odd lot thing where, you know, they Mm -hmm. leaned a little bit on this strategy where they would buy odd lots that then got marked up in the pricing system automatically to the price of round lots, which were, you know, always going to be higher. And that helps to kind of artificially inflate performance in that ETF, right? So, and the benefit of a strong start in your track record is like actually quite hard to shake. So, my mind is clouded by that on trying to compare those two. But I do think, you know, mm-hmm. this this idea that PIMCO total return was too big, it was still like a great time in bonds. So if you're going to buy all of the bonds that there are, for a very long time, that would just work. You know, that's mostly fine. For, you know, and, and this is what people would say that, oh, it's just beta. And of course, I would disagree and that there were, you know, some alpha generating strategies alongside that. But I think that the kind of idea where they too big to outperform or too big to maneuver is sort of sideways in bonds. I think he was actually more able to anchor new issues better because of that size and get better execution you know, treat the street the way he did and, you know, wring extra basis points out of them because of the size. I think it's more like, I can't explain the 2011 treasury call. I don't really, you know, it's one of those like, he must have really thought that he had an insight, that he had the odds in his favor. And I can't, because this is kind of an unusual call for him to say, oh, the Fed is, you know, reducing its support of measures and there's going to be a Fed-shaped hole in the market and I think I'm going to sell all my treasuries. Like that's an enormous and very contrarian call. And it's pretty shocking in the context of his personality and his sense of risk-taking and, you know, all of the things that that we know about Bill Gross. So I'm a little confused about the motivation on that one, like what was going on in his head. And then I think he, you know, he apologized, he got back on the horse and the rest of, you know, 2013 didn't seem as flagrant of a deviation from his risk management style, Right. His time at Janus also was kind of a deviation from his risk management. But to me, it's not so much a question of size as I don't know what happened in 2011. And then I think in 2013, you know, from the moment that he left PIMCO and started managing this new fund at Janus and the moment of his retirement, interest rates went up. So it's my sort of untested theory that many of his strategies worked best in a falling rate environment. And that in that time period, he either didn't get the true odds of his like longer term strategies that, you know, gain a little basis point here and a basis point there. He didn't have the time for that to really show its benefit. But then also, I think he was gunning too hard at Janice. So very long-winded answer <laughs> to say, I don't think it was size, but I do think that, you know, of course that's part of it. And maybe the size informed this, a little bit of hubris maybe, where he was like, oh, I'm going to make the, I'm going to take a big swing here, you know? Mm-hmm. 
We're going to talk about PIMCO's culture. You describe it in pretty unsparing terms in the book. What, what was it? What was it like, in your opinion? If you just had to explain to the layperson who maybe hasn't read the book, what was PIMCO's culture like during this period of time hmm. where you know gross reigned over the firm? Yeah, people have said they were aggressive bullies. Um, I think you know different groups were different. Also, if you were in, you know, a nice pocket of the client facing, there you could have had a nice experience. But the culture on the trade floor was so intense and so competitive and also silent, just dead silent, no eye contact. Everyone's like silently clacking their little keys and emailing each other things. And everybody's like aggressively CCing each other. And it's kind of a blame-seeking framework in there where you're trying to figure out like, oh, this whose who's fault is this trade? Uh, there was one partner that people called the Riddler because you could never pin him down on an answer and then he was never wrong, <laughs> which I love. Um, but I think that, yeah, this this um, this culture was, it sounds to me like it was super toxic. I'm very glad that I did not work there personally. They did not offer to hire me, I should be clear, but I'm glad that I didn't work there. <laughs> but it was, you know, intense, aggressive. There, You know, you would go to investment committee, people would cry sometimes because it was people were picking at each other or, you know, somebody would fixate on on one point or your presentation had the wrong numbers on the page and you would get kicked out or, and no one would stand up for you, right? Like you're going to get torn to pieces and everyone's just like, well, don't know him. <laughs> and that's the way it was. They're just, it sounds like the predominant culture was one of no friends, no <laughs> You know, like no friends on the trade floor. Maybe, you know, this is all, of course, with the kind of a lot of them loved this culture. So to them, it is friendly. <laughs> and like, <laughs> they're, you know, some, especially some of the old guard where they were so aggressive to each other and like literally cut one guy's fancy new tie because they're like, it's ugly. We don't, we don't like it. We're doing you a favor and doused him with bug spray. Like all these things that I would categorize as just classic bullying, right? Just like mean behavior. They're like, no, no, it's good fun. I'm like, is that what fun looks like? Is that fun? So they're, they're a small asterisk that some people like this. Um, and I have gotten some people to, this one person emailed me being like, I would take issue with your characterization that that we were like, you know, mean and, and bullies, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes on a bit and he's like, we really chewed people up and spat them out and it was great. And I'm like, I think you're saying the same <laughs> thing that I said. <laughs> we just think about it differently. Um, and that's fine. That's fine. We can all have opinions. But yeah, it sounds like it was rough. So PIMCO had a very difficult time in 2014, 2015, big outflows. But since then, it has been able to gather assets net-net into its funds. What lent the firm that resilience, do you think, after Gross left? I think they focused really hard on just like keeping it together. And there was a real sense of, you know, we're not going to let everyone take advantage of us. And that super competitive, intense culture that Bill Gross built, you know, that he shaped is still very much alive and well. And I think that was very, very kind of acutely relevant in the 2014 period where in the wake of his departure, you know, all these hedge funds thought that they could take advantage and like trade against PIMCO, hedge funds and others, you know, who knows. And I think like everyone expected this like wave of redemption and PIMCO would have to sell and all of the money would flood out. And clients were kind of like, meh. I knew Bill Gross was going to have to leave eventually. I kind of know these guys that run this fund. Kind of seems fine. I'm just going to wait it out and just see what happens. You know, a lot of clients did pull their money and a lot of clients stayed. So I think once the dust settled and, you know, Bill was 
actually gone from the firm, which to some people removed this overhang, right? These management transitions are so hard to achieve gracefully. We're seeing that across financial services and I think, you know, everywhere. It's kind of like, oh, good. We resolved this issue that we were going to have to resolve eventually. So if you already trust the management team and you have this kind of concern that's just been allayed, it sounds a little insensitive, but I think a lot of clients were like, okay, fine. I'm in. I'm staying. And, you know, they do have a a track record and a a strong brand. So I think that contributes a lot to that resilience. Bill Gross, I think to his disappointment, built this very, very strong firm that did end up being really resilient. Yeah, and you could argue they couldn't have done that without talent in a deep bench, which Mm -hmm. seems a bit contradictory because, you know, while there were a few figures that Gross seemed to take under his wing, he doesn't come across as someone who would nurture talent. If anything, it's mm-hmm. maybe the opposite. Given that, how did the firm, in your opinion, manage to identify and, and cultivate the talent it did through the years, that talent helping to sustain the firm after Gross departed? I think a lot of it was, you know, they would probably point to the compensation and the partnership structure. And they, I'm pretty sure, would point to that where it's, you know, you can achieve these great riches if you stick around and are invested in the firm and they have, you know, shadow equity that can be very lucrative and and beneficial. So to some extent, it's that, Um, you know, they pride themselves on being a meritocracy and and being, you know, super smart and thought leaders and all these things. And I think to some extent that's effective. So I think, you know, the combination of it is a, a strong brand, one of those you know, fixed income managers that we all know and talk about and listen to what they say. So if I'm in fixed income and I get a job offer from him, go, I'm not going to not consider it, right? Like I'm like, oh, and I know about the compensation structure there. That would be, you know, maybe potentially compelling. And it is that trade-off where you're, especially, you know, when Bill Gross was there, you know that you're making this agreement to experience what one source called wire brushing <laughs> by Bill Gross and the culture, right? The overall kind of predominant culture there. But you get compensated for it. You get literally compensated for it. And like, that's the deal. That's what you're agreeing to and you know that. So it attracted this certain type of person who was like, okay, I'm willing to take that deal. And I don't know that that so much has changed necessarily after Bill. I think that, you know, there are still a lot of talented people that are motivated in this way and that see this, this trade-off and agree to it. So we want to talk about some of the conclusions that you lay out toward the end of the book. Uh, You talk about staying too long in a crucible of toxicity, as you call it, and insecurity (laughs) and the long-lasting corrosive effects on the mind. Can you summarize some of the other sort of key takeaways for you as you think about your long work on PIMCO and Bill Gross for this book? Yeah, so it's interesting, that line that you highlight, um, I've talked to some people still at PIMCO and and I don't know if they're just saying this because they're talking to me and it's, you know, I don't know if they would say this to other people, but they're like, I wonder how my mind has changed since I've been here. Like, do I actually have perspective? Have I been corroded? I'm like, oh, I love that you're thinking about that. I mean, that's like, like that kind of reflection is to kind of catalyze that kind of reflection is such a, I don't know, I didn't dream of that. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, some of the other things that I learned, you know, I feel like I witnessed a lot of score settling and incredibly petty behavior from people that we expect to be grownups. And, you know, of course, this underscores to me the fact that we never grow up. That's a myth. And, you know, fine, okay. (laughs) But 
I, I spent a lot of years wondering if this extreme pettiness was a precondition to accruing massive wealth, right? If I have to be that competitive and that single-minded and that petty in order to become a billionaire and like totally able to lose sight of bigger pictures and just hyper-focus on that, you know, like, is that a pre-existing condition or do we only know about the pettiness because the people who display it that I'm thinking of at least are rich enough to really flex, you know, to put it on display and, and make it make headlines. And then the thing that I think I learned from Bill Gross and from some of the other kind of game theory people, stats people in this book, there's this refreshing sense that, you know, if Bill Gross trusts you and respects you, he can come to the table the next day in this relationship with you totally fresh. You know, he's not going to remember that you had a bad trade. If he doesn't trust you, he will never forget it. So that's a different bucket though. But like this ability to stick to your structure, to stick with your idea of the world and just trust that you know what you're doing. I find that really admirable. You know, it took me so long to write this book and I probably should have given up a hundred times, but there was this, you know, Bill Gross was out there not giving up. And I'm like, well, there's something really admirable to me about this ability to show up fresh and say, okay, I'm keeping at it. You know, my strategy works. It didn't work yesterday, but today it's going to work because overall it's a good strategy and I'm going to keep at it. I don't know. I really like that. That kind of like unshakable confidence is really really admirable. Well, we're glad that you stayed at it. We really enjoyed the book and so appreciate you discussing it with us. Thanks so much for this conversation and all the insights that you shared with us. Thanks to you. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. Thanks so much, Mary. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you could, please take a minute to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. And at Christine underscore Benz. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.